Greetings, everyone. This is the Sound Health Radio Show, where we talk about the crossroads of the environment and our health with Richard Talk to Me Guy. And as I say each week, and I know it's true, Sherry Edwards is working on the soundhealthportal.com. I'm currently leaning heavily into suggesting that if you want to know, because you want to know more about the Sound Health Portal and Sherry's work, I suggest going to the soundhealthportal.com, scrolling down past all the, oh, you could do this, you could look at that. Just scroll down all the way to the bottom, click on the video tab, find a subject where Sherry is talking with somebody. This will be a recording of a live workup online with somebody who volunteered to have their vocal print or their voice recording run through the software. And you'll get to watch the process and watch how it works, the conversation with the person that she's talking to, the information that comes up from their vocal print. A vocal print is a recording, about a 30 to 45 second recording of their voice that's run through the software. And whatever software package the person wants to look at, let's say they have allergies and they want to find out what their immune system status is. And they can run it through something like cellular inflammation, possibly PTSD sometimes, oddly enough. Sherry's done a lot of work with veterans. And watch the video. Then, after you watch the video and get an idea of what it looks like, how it is to do it, and the kind of information that is available from that report, I think last year sometime Sherry designed a pie chart that is really great because, for me, it's very visual which really helps me. And it shows you like, here's the thing you want to be looking at right now. This is the thing. This might be the thing that might be causing the methylation cascade, which is the chart that shows all the flow of all the hormones and all the interactions in the system and how they all, we kind of are a system that wants to work in a direction, so to speak, our body. It's a really great way to see how the sound health portal works, how the information flows, and the kind of vast amounts of data you can get And then after you do that, then go back, scroll up, and then look at the campaigns. Campaigns are free current packages that you can look at. And they rotate through. They can be anything from PTSD or neuroplasticity, which looks at the brain. I always like to be looking at the brain and see what's going on in my brain. And then sign up for a free account. Pick a campaign, enter your information. The system will walk you through doing a vocal recording. And you'll have a report emailed to you in two to six hours. And you'll be able to sit down with a cup of tea, look at the information. And then if you have a practitioner that you work with, such as Dr. Rothenberg, you could take that report in and you could sit down and talk about it and go, what is this? What do we think? What can we be doing? The Sound Health Portal is great. To hear and share replays of the show about 20 to 30 minutes after you hear the outro music, you can go to talk to me guy, all words, dot com, talk to me guy dot com. Scroll down that page and you'll see this show with the show complete show notes. And any of the links that we talk about during the show I'll put in there. Anything that pops up in our conversation that wasn't in some of the show notes that I've already written, it'll link to Dr. Rothenberg's site, most of the information available. And you can go there and you can, down in the lower right-hand corner of those show notes is a microphone. And if you tap that microphone, you can leave me a message saying, what about this? What about that? Could we have this person on? Could you look into this? 
any kind of question you want, and I'll get a notification about that. Also, just down below that same show notes is a player that you can write there from that page, the landing page. You can tap that player, stream right from there. And or right below that, you can pick any of the numerous amount of aggregators, meaning players, that you can listen to the show on. And with that, Dr. Amy Rothenberg has practiced naturopathic medicine since 1986. The American Association of Naturopathic Physicians, 2017 Physician of the Year. She is currently president of the Massachusetts Society of Naturopathic Doctors and spearheaded the successful licensure effort in Massachusetts. She was a longtime medical editor for the Institute of Natural Medicine. When diagnosed with cancer in 2014, Dr. Rothenberg sought care at a renowned teaching hospital and also added naturopathic doctors who specialize in integrative oncology to create her medical dream team. Her book, You Finish Treatment, Now What? A Field Guide for Cancer Survivors is a roadmap for lifestyle and natural medicine to address health challenges that persist after care and to reduce risk of reoccurrence. In her spare time, Dr. Rothenberg enjoys puttering in her art studio and spending time with family and friends. Dr. Rothenberg has worked with Paul Herskew, ND, MPH, since 1986. They've raised three wonderful children and enjoy the good life in Western Massachusetts. Dr. Rothenberg joins us to talk about You Finished Treatment, Now What? A Field Guide for Cancer Survivors. Welcome, Dr. Amy. Thank you so much for having me. I'm going to start in an unusual location in your book. Okay. Or actually, this is from, this is from your blog. And I will explain why in just a second. On your blog, you wrote, if my father only knew. Now, I had a mother who died of metastasized cancer. I think this is such an important area for people to understand. In, in his particular case, I think the complete article is the role of natural medicine in preventing and treating heart disease. What, what do you wish your father had known or was aware of or pick the word that you feel is yeah, the most appropriate. You bet. You bet. Well, I'm sorry that you lost your mother, first of all. Um, my, my father died in his sleep at age 48 from a massive heart attack. And wow. he was somebody who, uh, this was 1972. So in that time, there was not that much really offered to people who had cardiovascular risk factors related to being overweight, smoking, high cholesterol, high blood pressure, blood sugars ranging into the higher ranges. And now, of course, most people, if they have risk factors or family history of cardiovascular disease, there's a lot that can be done to help prevent that. Now, not everybody takes up those recommendations, of course, as they might, but we just know more now than we used to. In, similarly, my mother passed away a few years later of metastatic breast cancer. Um, she carried a genetic mutation related to that cancer. Um, and, you know, we know much more now than we knew then. So that's really the reason for that title. And also, it's just a general a comment around medicine and the role of preventive and natural medicine approaches. We know that primary prevention, primary prevention is basically living the kind of lifestyle, eating a particular way, getting regular exercise, taking time for 
rest and relaxation, um, ensuring adequate sleep. All of these are things that help to prevent our three big chronic illnesses that cause uh, just lack of quality of life as well as impact length of life, cardiovascular disease, diabetes, and cancer. Although they are very different kinds of illnesses and they manifest differently in people in terms of the symptom patterns, the kind of lifestyle that would be best to help prevent those kind of problems in the first place is, is actually fairly similar across those disease entities. In my book, my book is really focused on working with and written for cancer survivors who are really interested in both addressing the kind of complaints that they have now often from conventional cancer treatments. I myself um, had surgery, I took chemotherapy, I had radiation, I did immunotherapy, I, I've done everything that conventional medicine can offer. And by design, many of these treatments are quite harsh. They have a big job to do. But there are many natural medicine approaches that can be used to help unwind, or I like to say mop up, if you will, after conventional uh -huh. cancer care. And then, of course, there's the whole project, which is ongoing and lifelong, to shift one's internal environment to be less hospitable to cancer. And that's really the heart and soul of the book that I wrote. I love that. That would be a great T-shirt. A, a hospital, non-hospital, I can't use that word, um, a, hostile, <laughs> a hostile environment for cancer. I love yeah. that idea because it's so... That's a whole. I I'm a fan of naturopathy. A, B. I had by the time I will go back to my mother for a moment. I had by the time my mother was that sick, and I had been traveling around the country doing whole life expos and those kinds of shows, selling full spectrum light and water filters and and things before people even knew what full spectrum lighting was. We were selling it, and doing shows all over the Pacific Northwest. And I'd already had gotten my degree as a master herbalist and had an herb store and a national mail order catalog and yada, yada, yada. And I know that one of the reasons that my mother didn't call me and say, I'm not feeling well, what do you think, is because she knew I would tell her. And I mean that in a kind and loving way. She didn't want to hear it. She didn't want to. She, she knew. She waited so long that by the time she was hospitalized for her conditions, she was went into the ICO and died 11 days later. Oh, for goodness sake. Okay. Well, so there was I, that, no that and, traumatic, traumatic all the way around. All the way around. And I was, sure. and I was the person, I was her person. Oh. My father was too in trauma to do anything. My brother was out of the country. And so I was the person. Got and it. she knew that I would be, she told me she wanted no heroic effort. She wanted, you know, she knew she was going, going. And she didn't want to try to be saved because she knew that she had let herself go too far. Now, and we yeah. had some of those conversations. And I totally was like, okay, if that's what you want to do, I am supporting you, and I am the guy that will help you do that. And that's when yeah. she chose me to be her person. But yeah. it was still traumatic, and it was still yeah. gnarly as bad words, string of bad words, um, ridiculously yeah. gnarly. Yeah. And, well, I um, think it's also, it's also true that you know, we can, we, we, when we know a lot and we have a lot to share, we have the responsibility to share it with the people who want to and who are ready to hear it. Uh, mm -hmm. We can't help everybody. We can't save everybody. But I think knowing it's, it's a, a double-edged sword. Sometimes I feel like, oh, I know way too much and 
Uh, there's so much I could do for that person. But if they're not willing or ready or able, it, it doesn't matter how much I know. And that's okay. That's okay. There's plenty. I always say there's plenty of sick people to go around. Uh, <laughs> and, of course, sometimes oh the people yeah. who are closest to us are the hardest ones to help. And, um, you know, many doctor friends of mine feel the same way. That they've been able to help so many people in their own practices with whatever the complaint might be, but when it comes to their own dear ones, sometimes they feel they have fallen short. And yeah. I would just say that, you know, we do the best we can with the people that we can with the understanding that we can't help everybody. That right. said, there are so many things to do. There's a lot of low-hanging fruit for people in terms of making changes with lifestyle, making changes with choices that we make related to what we eat, how we move our bodies, how we rest and relax that do impact our quality of life and our health outcomes across the illness board, not just related to cancer. Mm -hmm. So I think that um, the, the purpose of my book really was to lay out and, and make accessible a very confusing and what can be overwhelming topic for people. If you go on the internet and you type in anything related to survivorship, there's so much information out there and there's so much good stuff and there's so much bad stuff and there's so much expensive stuff. And so having a bit of a guide to what are the things that have some evidence behind them to show efficacy. Um, the book that I wrote is it's not terribly long. It's several hundred pages, but there are numerous, numerous pages of references. Everything that I talk about and suggest and recommend, I give a reference to a scientific article where this particular, let's say, dietary approach or this particular herbal medicine or this particular approach to stress management has been shown to have positive effects on the cancer survivorship individual and communities. So uh -huh. I'm really a person who uh, I've been in practice for going on 37 years now. I have a lot of experience with my patients, but I'm not relying only on my experience to make recommendations. I'm leaning into the medical literature. And then my patients will ask, well, if this is in the medical literature, why aren't all doctors recommending these kinds of things? And it's a great question. And, and I know that my own providers from the conventional medical world are quite interested in the work that I do. They sometimes send me questions about other patients they have, or they send me patients that, who they believe would do well with another fresh perspective on ways to improve survivorship years. So I think that the, the promise of this kind of work is that the future, or the future of this kind of work, I should say, is that there, this kind of, uh, these kinds of approaches will be integrated, that you'll spend your time with your conventional medical doctor getting the state-of-the-art care that you deserve related to whatever cancer you have had. And then the next hour or the next day, you will sit down with a naturopathic doctor who has expertise in integrative oncology or a medical doctor who has studied this work as well or other providers who have these skills and get the entire landscape of what else you could be doing to help improve your quality of life and mop up from conventional care and also to help change your potential for shift it downward to having another primary cancer or to having a recurrence of the cancer that you have. And I want to, some birds, I want, there's some birds in the background here. So I'm sorry. No, I, I, I know nature in the background. I like nature okay. in the background. I'm a fan. Okay. Um, if you want, I'm a fan of big dogs. No, no, no. I'm, I'm fine with okay. uh, birds. I'm uh, also very fond of uh, big dogs barking. Um, okay. Really. Uh, I want to back up a moment. And for the audience, 
What is the therapeutic order? Naturopathic physicians follow a therapeutic order. And it's, it's, it goes to everything that you've said in that it's a different approach than traditional Western medicine. What yes, is the, the therapeutic things, order? Yeah, thank you for asking that question. One of the things that I love most about my profession is that we are predicated on a very strong, very logical, philosophical grounding is the way that we understand people and nature and health. And so from the very beginning of the naturopathic medical school training, which is a four-year postgraduate training um, for those interested in naturopathic medicine education, there's lots written about it. You can find further information on the American Association of Naturopathic Physicians website. But the very first element of the therapeutic order, which basically codifies our philosophy, is to remove obstacles to health. So things that we know are clearly going to interfere with health, smoking cigarettes, eating a lot of junk food, having a sedentary lifestyle. It's all things that are based on lifestyle approaches to healing. And these are things that everybody will benefit from kind of regardless of where they are starting. The second element of therapeutic order has to do with stimulating the inborn self-healing mechanism. Our, which basically means that we have an inner capacity for healing to one degree or another. If we give ourselves the right raw materials, time for healing and rest, the right emotional state, and all of these are, you know, they're just a couple of words to say. They're not always that easy to actually attain and maintain. But we like to stimulate that inner capacity for healing through nutrition, through herbal medicine, through hydrotherapy, with a number of, of tools that we use. The third element of the therapeutic order is to strengthen weakened systems. So if it's the digestive system that is impacted or the urinary tract, or perhaps it's the whole system related to our emunctories, which enable us to detox from the normal metabolites of digestion, we have ways to strengthen our various physiologic systems through diet, through exercise, through the gentle use of natural medicines, nutritional supplements, botanicals, et cetera. The fourth component has to do with correcting structural integrity. We know that if the spine is better aligned, and we have many colleagues across the professions of osteopathic medicine and chiropractic medicine who also have expertise in helping people to attain proper physical integrity. Then the fifth element has to do with using natural substances to restore and regenerate, um, not necessarily to treat specific pathology. If pathology has to be addressed, then we prioritize the safe and effective use of natural substances. The sixth element has to do with using pharmacologic substances to halt the progression of pathology. Now, naturopathic doctors are licensed just like medical doctors state by state. Within the naturopathic profession, scope of practice is somewhat different depending on the state that you live and practice in. So if you're living in a state that allows for the prescribing of certain pharmaceuticals, naturopathic doctors can help there. In states where that is not part of the formulary, naturopathic doctors work side by side with a referral system to the type of provider who could prescribe appropriately for certain situations that require it. 
And the seventh part of the, the therapeutic order is using high-force invasive modalities. This is particularly true with cancer patients. Naturopathic doctors are not trained or licensed to use any of those approaches, but certainly to be in communication with and through a referral system to medical oncologists who have that expertise and training. So that is, that's basically our therapeutic order. And then I would say other strong philosophical points are treating the whole person, really trying to identify and treat the underlying causes of illnesses. Um, we really lean into the idea of doctor as teacher. We want to be a partner with you in terms of making the right kinds of changes and recommendations to help you address symptoms that you have and achieve better health. Um, so the philosophy of our approach, and, and of course it starts with like all doctors first, do no harm. So we're really interested in using the least toxic and least aggressive forms of medicine, regardless of what your complaints are, and then using the other things only as needed and hopefully with a gentle hand. And one of my, boy, that's a, just what you said is a whole show. Um, yeah, it really we is. Could just ri- we could just riff off of just that. Sometime we'll ha- I'll have you back and we'll just talk about that. that because I think for me, I'm I'm an old herbalist. I mean, I, I don't have any prescriptive abilities. I don't have anything, but I've talked to thousands of people in having a national mail order catalog where people call up and you have to explain things that I'm not legally able to talk about in ways that people can understand. There's that. But this this thing where you given the opportunity, the body will heal itself. Yes. And I have an I, expletive I there that I can't use on air that I really want to say like, you know, like really (laughs) everything that you're talking about leads to the body's capacity to repair itself. That's right. And I just want to, I just want to thank you for years and years of dedication to this work and also for taking the deep dive into herbal medicine. I have a chapter in the book on the use of botanical medicines to Mm -hmm. help address problems that persist after cancer care. There's so many beautiful herbs that are readily available, especially to use to change the internal environment to be least hospitable to cancer. I mean, even just your very basic culinary herbs like onions, and these are foods as well, garlic, yeah, turmeric, yeah. and ginger, you know, that, that, that the foursome right there is just, yeah. it's, they're beautiful, they're readily available, most people can find them, and they taste good. And they have a great way of impacting immune function. And, of course, as a cancer survivor myself, I am, as is everybody, but in particular, entirely dependent on my immune system to do a good job to keep any wayward cells deciding to start up, uh, set up shop somewhere and create another cancer. So leaning into the, the herbs that surround us, learning about them and, you know, giving a nod to the plants in our world and the many other attributes that they offer us besides relaxation and green space and then in our home, helping to purify the air in our homes. There's so many roles for plants that uh, we, I think sometimes take for granted because they're kind of ubiquitous, uh, especially if you uh, are not living in a strictly urban environment. That said, right. many cities have really understood this now and tree planting is has become very popular and, and the development and growth of all kinds of greenways and parks for people to access. This is a, uh, 
an important part of our public health actions, our city planning, in terms of being inviting places where plants are growing and people can take advantage of their healing capacity. This is a wonderful book uh, written by Diana Beresford Kroger called Call of the Forest. And she was an MD who got fed up with that industry. We'll just say that. Amazing, amazing. <laughs> and went and got back, went back and got her PhD in botanical medicine. Good for her. And she wrote the Good book. And her. one of the parts of her book, I spent three days at a conference or actually at a workshop with her. Yeah. And one of the things that she talked about, a large sector, another book was talking about in Japan, they have forests dedicated with paths, as you would only in Japan have paths in the forest, but paths so people could go walk in this forest and have picnics in this forest. And they were getting the benefit of the esters and the oils and the essences coming off of those trees. Absolutely. And it wasn't like they were, they weren't magic trees. They were trees. Yes, yes. some of the trees have better benefits of, than others. We're not talking eucalyptus. Yeah. Um, we're talking more sort of pine kind of world. And people would go there and that's a thing in Japan. That's a known, like we go to this forest and you grow up as a child going to these areas and having picnics and having things because when you come out, you might test to be smarter. You might test to yeah. have a stronger immune system. You might just be happier. Oh, my God, yeah, not exactly. that, just happier. Well, there and are a number of provinces in Canada right now where healthcare providers can prescribe uh, for their patients passes to the national parks. And so this is like, this is coming. We know now that the prescription for time outside, let alone in the park, just time outside, because what does that mean? It means you're not sedentary. It means you're not sitting in front of a computer or a screen. It means that you are experiencing other things, which I think uh, we all could use more of. The other piece that is I do talk about a little bit in my book, I have a section on uh, changing the internal environment, as I've mentioned, and, and I really address the tumor microenvironment, the macroenvironment in which the tumor microenvironment exists, as well as the microbiome across our different parts of our body, and how being in nature, spending time in nature improves and enhances and leads us to a more robust and diverse microbiome. So it's interesting that even on that very, very ground floor level, time outdoors and time in the natural world helps to improve health by helping to enhance the microbiome. So, so it's all good. More time outside. Maybe hopefully you're listening to this podcast while taking a nice walk in the woods. <laughs> there we go. With your dog. I'm With not your dog. Cat. I'm not anti-cat <laughs> at all. I'm just very pro-dog. Um, <laughs> there you go. Because it's hard to take a cat out because they're like, yeah. what? I No, <laughs> I'm not having any of that. Um, and this I'm kind of torn to go different directions, but I, I, I want to talk about the book and the and your cancer and the that journey. But it re, this really does lead because we're talking about being in forest and attitude. I want to jump into a combination of chapter 11, which is the head game, stress and stress reduction, and chapter 15, which is community and connection. Yeah. And, and the combining of these for me comes from – when I had the herb store, I worked with a local hospice director. Mm, mm. And one of the things that she wanted me to do was come, and this is way back <laughs> in the 80s, man. And when cannabis was still very, cannabis was still very illegal mm. and that kind of thing. 
And what she wanted me to work with her on was formulations that were using cannabis suppositories with other herbs mm-hmm. to enhance mm-hmm. that action. Because yeah. she wanted people as they were getting, they were in hospice, they were already on the road to dying. And she wanted them to see if they could have some of, that, some of the patients that she worked with quietly. I'll say it that way, quietly. Uh, she wanted them to be able to have a cannabis suppository so they could be reduce their pain levels but not be stoned out of their minds in terms of the opiates. Yeah. And so they could actually have communications with their loved ones before they died. And so I spent about a year working on that project with her, and it was amazing to see, and this goes to reducing stress and stress reduction and community, the combination of reducing stress and in my mother's case, when she was hospitalized, she didn't want to see anybody because she uh, felt bad. Uh-huh. She didn't want people to come in and be sad over her. She wasn't being yeah. mean. She was just like she wanted to be isolated, and she put me in charge of that. Like, you're yeah. in charge of keeping people away from me. I don't want to talk to anybody, and I was there 12 hours, 12 <laughs> to 16 hours a day, and I took that on for her. We had, she wanted to have that happen. So I see that where people get into, and I've had other friends more recently who have gone through not dissimilar situations as yourself with cancer, where they can go into isolation and they can remove themselves from their community, which I think does not benefit their stress levels. Yeah. Could you talk about well, that it, big it, pool? Yeah, you bet. I mean, there is study after study showing that community and connection have a positive effect on quality of life and on health outcomes. But we have to interpret, read and interpret those studies through the lens of understanding individuality and biochemical individuality and personality. So for some people, it's going to be much easier to reach out and to be part of a community and to feel all that connection And for other people, it's going to be harder. So I'll give you a couple of examples here. Um, I have a neighbor who uh, is is just a a wonderful, energetic, very, very positive, very giving person. And she has, I have seen her involved with any number of organizations, projects, individuals who need help over the last many years. She recently, unfortunately, was diagnosed with cancer herself. And immediately, because it was her nature, and because it was the way she ran her life in general, she got people involved with doing the meal train, and she had other people coming and doing chores at around her house, and she did an, a weekly online Zoom gathering for people who just wanted to chat, not talk about cancer, that was the only rule, just chat about what was going on in their lives, et cetera. So she used tools that she already had and connections and relationships that she had already established, and she went through her cancer and continues to go through her cancer treatment much in the same way that she went through the rest of her life. Now, if you go to the opposite side of the spectrum, I have another patient who is a public figure in our community who was recently diagnosed and went through cancer treatment and basically did not want anybody to know. She felt like it was an important piece of keeping her public-facing personality and and persona that she did not want anybody to know. And we talked about it long and hard, and, and I supported her decision But I said to her, that's fine, but you're going to need to have an inner cohort of a few people that you can reach out to and lean into uh, who you can be totally yourself and honest with. And she understood the value of that, and she took a long time to consider who were going to be in that, uh, which people would be best to be in that small cadre of support people. For folks who are truly alone, 
and I know, I know some of you are listening, you know, you don't have a partner, you don't have family nearby, you haven't had the interest or capacity or nature to create a community or a group of friends around you, it's much harder. What I would say for people like that is that almost every cancer center around the country has support groups for people going through various kinds of cancers, as well as support groups for caregivers. Let's not leave caregivers out here. And I strongly encourage you to try something like that because we know that just being around a group of people that have gone through something similar, and remember every person's cancer story is different, um, but something similar, some similar, the, the shock of a diagnosis, the difficulty of getting through treatment, the concern about one's mortality, the symptoms that arise due to conventional cancer care. There's so much that can be shared. And even if you're not a strong participator in a group like that, just hearing it can be helpful. Some people will say to me, I don't want to be with any cancer people. That just stresses me out, and I don't want to hear other people's sad stories, and I, that would be too much for me. That's fine. And I encourage people to work even one-on-one -on -one with a therapist. It uh, doesn't have to be uh, somebody with particular skills around cancer patients, but just working one-on-one -on -one with somebody where you have a place to take your feelings and thoughts to share. It's, it's important. And part of why it's important, and contextualizing this in the whole, what I call in the book, the head game, is that we understand, in every, the more we study it, the more we understand that the way that we think and the way that we feel, our emotional body, if you will, impacts our nervous system. And our nervous system impacts our immune system. And our immune system, as I said earlier, we're dependent on it entirely to help keep cancer at bay. So by taking, a, taking stock of where we are in the psycho-emotional realm and trying to create a strategy moving forward to have the best possible mental outlook, that can actually impact your, both your quality of life and, and your health outcomes. So thank you for asking the question because it's a, a lot of times people come to me and they want to know, you know, what vitamins should I take to make my cancer go away? And, you know, what should I do in terms of, you know, can I, is there a homeopathic remedy that's going to help me with my lymphedema? And yes, I'm interested in all of that. And we will, we create a broad based general plan to address the things that are limiting you most at this point in time. But included in that, I'm always going to bring the conversation at some point in our initial hour and a half interview uh, doctor visit, I'm going to bring up the whole, where are you mentally? Tell me about your spirits. Any tendency for anxiety, depression, irritability? How's your mind? You know, the mind is often impacted by people after cancer care. We're very interested in really looking at the whole person and finding solutions that are both reachable, you know, that people can actually do and that are sustainable and that don't cause side effects or don't interfere with many people are on ongoing medications to help keep cancer at bay. Many people are living with disease, uh, a perfectly productive life, as long as they stay on this medication, a little bit of chemo here and there. Um, you know, so the, a lot of what is written in my book is also appropriate for people living with cancer. And I would put it in the, uh, oftentimes on air, I'll use the term total toxic load, which often yeah. refers to, oh, let's just say glyphosate. And we can stop there because I've done many shows with Stephanie yeah. Sidiff about glyphosate. Yeah. That it's just everywhere and 80% of people in America have glyphosate in their systems. So we'll just yeah. set that over there. But in this case, I really think that the mental state 
can be in that category of total toxic load. Because I've yes, seen people absolutely. that go through cancer and come out the other side, not unlike yourself. I have a good friend who in the past couple of years had a radical history, discovered cancer, very, you know, had a radical hysterectomy, went through the protocols, did everything, did a lot of adjunctive other things, yeah. you know, Paul Stamets formulations, vitamins, yeah. the chelation, you know, other beneficial things. But it's all in that, for me, all in that ball of total toxic load. And I oftentimes think that the mental state is not as addressed as it needs to be. Because if you I just agree. keep grinding away every day, if yeah, you just keep I, grinding away every day and saying, I'm dying, I'm dying, I'm dying, I can guarantee you, I bet you, yeah. you're going to die. <laughs> So true. I have a chapter in the book. It was one of my favorite chapters. It's basically called Reduce Environmental Toxic Exposure and Support Your Emunctories. Uh, you can read this chapter. You can learn a new word, emunctories. The emunctories are the, every part of our body that helps us with the detoxification of the normal, and I'm not even talking about the exogenous chemicals in our, everywhere in our environment, but just the normal metabolites of our digestive process. So the first part of the book talks about, the first part of the chapter rather, talks about all of the various kind of toxins in our environment and then recommendations on how to reduce your, your exposure to them. But then the second part, and I say right at the beginning, if you don't want to read the, 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 the doom and the dread, uh, skip right over to the support your emunctory part of the, yeah. this chapter. And I talk about all the various ways through ensuring good bowel movements and proper urination to deep breathing exercises, to perspiring. These are all ways that we are well equipped to metabolize both the, the normal things that we have from our digestive process, but also a, a fair number of the toxins from our environment. But to your last point, I'm just going to read one, one paragraph here at the end of the chapter, which is, I would add to this list of emunctories the importance of exploring and processing physical and psychological trauma, or just the sad, bad, angry, and difficult emotions you may have, tidying up the mind, taking stock and taking time to understand yourself so you can prioritize things most important to you and let others go, is part of the process of clearing out internal emotional waste, if you will. So I agree so much that what's going on inside the heart and the mind is part of what we need to address in any healing journey, not just related to cancer. And I like to create space for my patients to, to do just that. And I, you know, I cannot tell you how many people are busy, busy, busy with lots of things, both in terms of their livelihood, their family life, their getting their exercise, they're eating well, they're fill in the blank, and they forget to take time periodically to allow the body and mind to sync, and that's sync with the S-Y-N-C, not S-I-N-K, to, to think and to take stock of, of where you are and is, is this working for you, what you're doing right now and how you're living. And if, if nothing else, we are creatures that have the capacity for change and we have the capacity for evolution. So uh, baby steps, you know, baby steps sometimes, but certainly steps along the way. Mm-hmm. And I would, um, <laughs> I can't help it but say that my favorite form of therapy, and I think it's perfect for everything that you just described, is EMDR with a good practitioner, oh, which yeah. is rapid eye movement. And the reason, one of the reasons I like it so much is because it clears out things that you didn't know that were in there. 
Absolutely. I love it. And I, I love, love it for that. that. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm a huge yeah. fan. And I think for people with dealing with cancer or dealing with things that they, they don't even know that they're thinking that they want to think about. Yeah. Man, yeah. EMDR could be gold. Yeah. When I, when I completed my cancer care at the beginning of 2015, I mentioned to a friend that I was going, I had set up an appointment to see a therapist and do some EMDR. And I, I parenthetically said, you know, I'm probably the least therapized person you've ever met. I've never been to a therapist before. I'm not saying that meaning that I have such perfect, pristine mental health, just that I had never chosen that as a tool to use. And this person said to me very innocently, they said, well, what did you feel like was so traumatic about it, you know, your, your experience? And I said to her, oh, my God, are you kidding me? The entire thing was traumatic. <laughs> Finding the lump in my breast, yeah. sitting with the doctor, getting the bad news, going in for one surgery, then another, sitting in with a line in my arm, getting chemotherapy, laying on that table, having radiation treatment. The whole thing was traumatic. And so I was very blessed to work with a wonderful uh, practitioner who I periodically go back to when I just feel like I need to unwind a little bit that I need to, oh, that was it. I was triggered by something which makes mm-hmm. me understand if I was triggered that probably there's more work to unwind. So yes, I love, I love EMDR. And if you're looking for an EMDR practitioner, you can look on the Psychology Today website. Um, they list out therapists all over this country and they, you can search for a particular project, including EMDR. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm laughing only because uh, in a good way, not in a like dark way. Um, you don't even mention the bald head thing that occurs, which oh, well, is that always was, mind blowing. One, oh, see, exactly. Took, oh, that, oh, well, yeah, that. <laughs> I, I took that one. I took the bull by the horns on that one. I had fairly long hair, beautiful, uh, dark, dark hair with a lot of, white, uh, wispy gray throughout now at, at 62. But I, um, I had long hair before my chemo began, and I decided that I, I had a couple weeks that before my hair was going to start falling out. So first I got myself a, a nice kind of shoulder-length bob, and then I got a cute little right-around-the-ear little French haircut. Then I got a very mm-hmm. short do, and then I took mm-hmm. one of my kids with me, and we went to the barber that my sons grew up going to, and I asked for a number one buzz cut. And if anybody ever gets a buzz cut, you know that the numbers have to do with the length of the hair. This is quite short, very close to the head. Mm-hmm. And I really could rock that buzz cut. I looked really good. I have to say, I loved it. In fact, sometimes I think about doing it again just for fun, but I don't want people to think I'm sick. And it, would, it looks like, you know, you're probably about to have chemo when you get that kind of haircut. But um, interestingly enough, there's, there's a photo on my uh, blog, a blog that I had before, well before I wrote this book called Field Notes for Natural Medicine. If you scroll back in that blog, you can see a beautiful photograph of my son, uh, whose name is Misha. And it turns out we have the exact same profile and the exact same hairline. He, hmm. he always sports a buzz cut. And that was really news to all of us. So sometimes <laughs> I, I think taking back a little bit of power when you're going through some hard times can be very helpful. I have mm-hmm. a, a chapter in the book which is called How to Talk So Your Oncologist Listens and Listen So Your Oncologist Talks. That's a title borrowed by a very famous parenting book by uh, two authors, Farber and Maslish. And it was called How to Talk So Your Kids Listen and Listen So Your Kids Talk. But same concept. I want people to feel empowered when they're working with their doctors and also in a time when people often feel really disempowered, how to take back a little bit of that 
for yourself. And for me, one example of that was getting that buzz cut. Um, mm-hmm. Other examples of that for me are always meeting my doctors fully clothed. I don't care what the process and procedure is I need to have when possible. Um, and then always coming in with my list of questions that I have and saying at the beginning of my visit, I have some questions I want to be sure to ask you when you're done with what you need to do. And then asking those questions. Also bringing somebody with you, particularly those of you who are in the earlier stages of cancer care or just finishing up treatment, you want to bring somebody with you to help remind you to ask your questions, to take notes and write things down. It can be overwhelming sitting there and having information flying at you. Um, So, yeah, that's a wonderful chapter for just helping you feel like you're in in control of your own destiny, if you will, and your own process within the medical world. That's chapter chapter two, which I advocate for everybody just reading that about how to talk and listen from how to talk to your doctor and how to listen to your doctor. Yes. I think that's very powerful. Thank you. Thank you so much. I mean, one of the, one of the things that I really emphasize in that chapter is how, you know, you need to advocate for the best way that for you to take in information. A lot of my patients will record sessions. Um, it's just helpful to know how you learn best and how you will retain information best. And then the other side of it is, you know, to be that patient that the doctors enjoy treating, be be appropriately, you know, thankful for their service. I I will always bring small offerings. I write thank you cards. If you're going to write a thank you card, be specific. I mean, what provider doesn't like to be reminded of the value of their work besides getting paid? Um, so I, I think there's, there's lots in there for, for all of us, not just cancer survivors. I was in a, I'll make this very succinct, uh, about 13 or 14 years ago, I was in a healthcare facility for a year because I had about 30 hours of surgery. My bowel had uh, adhesed to my bladder oh my and goodness. my gastroenterologist caught it at the right time <laughs> because if that continues to happen, then you end up with tubules from the bowel directly into the bladder, and that's bad, very oh, bad. Yeah. And so I had part of it removed. I was on an ostomy bag for a year, and I had all sorts of other fascinating procedures, mm. including a reconstruction of my urethra. Um, but so I was in a healthcare facility for a year, and the doctor that was the – and it was a big 250-bed facility – and the doctor who would come in every few days was part of it. You know, it was part of a network of systems where basically you would have resident doctors, but you'd have the doctor come in and do a review. And at some point, the doctor just looked at me. We would argue because I was in bad shape, but I was still cognitive. Yeah. Even when I was on drugs, I was pretty much like, wait a minute, I have questions. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And at some point, about a third of the way in, she was like, okay, I get it. You know what you're doing, and I'll let you do that. Because I wanted things like vitamin C. <laughs> I wanted a clean protein shake because the food in the facility was facility yeah. food. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, that. So I had stuff that I wanted to do for my own benefit. And my people that would come in and visit me, I had somebody who would always was with me taking notes when I was asking questions, particularly early on during post-procedures or when I was around. Because some of the procedures were at the UC Med Center in San Francisco. So I was in big venues with people, lots of people. And I always had somebody with me who agreed to like be there to remind me to ask questions or take notes and all that. And it was hugely beneficial, huge, 
Yeah. Because you're, well, you know, you're in the system that, and you forget. Go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. No, I was just going to say that, you know, the average length of time of a medical visit right now in America is about 13 minutes. Yeah. Um, it's not, it's not a lot of time to get much done. And also, I mean, you could guess how much time goes by before the average physician interrupts the patient. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know if you want to take a stab at that, but I, I can tell you the research has been done. It's 11 seconds. So it's not a lot that can be said wow. in 11 seconds. I mean, I talk fast, but not that fast. Yeah. Um, and that, and that's, that's certainly not every doctor. And, and the higher you go up in terms of the world of specialists, the more time you generally have with a doctor. But making mm-hmm. good use of your time, bringing the questions that you have, learning, asking to be uh, given information in formats that work for you. I think that these are all, these work across the medical board, regardless of what you're, and I just want to say congratulations to you for getting through that very narrow time and finding help largely from advocating for yourself and doing things in addition to conventional care that help to optimize the approaches that you were using. Thank you. One of my peak experiences was I was on a, I was ambulatory mostly uh, but I used a cane or a walker early on. And I remember one day a friend dropped by and gave me a, we were outside talking just out front of the facility. And she handed me a box of electrolytes and vitamin C on, by uh, the company Ololoa, who I'm a big fan of their products. The father of Cal, well, at least in San Francisco, he was, I can't think of his name right now, unfortunately, but he was really part of the orthomolecular medicine movement, one of the early cool. founders. Started Oloa. Yeah. And so I'm walking in with this. I mean, I'm wearing gowns, so I have no pockets. You can't hide yeah. anything. You have no pockets yeah. where well, you could, but it might be uncomfortable. And so I had this box of vitamin C packets. And she, the person at the front desk was like, well, you have to run that by the doctor. Give that to me. And I'm like, string of bad words. And I just walked by. Like, no, <laughs> no. Are you blah, 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 blah. Kidding me. No. And then well, that's and when the doctor finally said. It brings mm-hmm. up an interesting point. You know, how do we blend conventional oncology yes. care and post-treatment yeah. care with natural integrative medicine? Because mm-hmm. although a lot and the vast majority of natural integrative approaches are non-harmful, it is important to understand drug-nutrient interactions, mm-hmm. herbal drug interactions, food drug interactions, etc. And so that's why, and, and I can't go through all the possible ways things can go sideways here, but I would say trying to find yourself a licensed naturopathic doctor or other provider who has expertise in this area is, is very important because you certainly don't want to be doing anything that puts you at risk. Um, like, for instance, I'll give one example. A lot of people love to take fish oil uh, and vitamin mm. C because they're anti-inflammatory and they're great for your, you know, the fish oil in particular, great for cognitive functioning and, and your mood. But they are mildly, along with a number of other supplements like curcumin and bromelain, they're mildly blood thinning. So mm-hmm. if you're taking a blood thinner, you know, you, it doesn't mean that you can't take those natural medicines, but you have to be careful how many of different kinds that you take at once in what kind of dosage. And that's very, the biochemical individuality mandates that that prescription be done specifically on you, you know, your health history background, your weight, your diet, and a number of other factors. So it's important to understand that natural medicine is just not uh, everything 
only ever good. Things can go badly if not done appropriately. And probably the, the biggest challenge in terms of natural medicine would be if you were not working with somebody who was a reputable provider, they may not give you the best advice related to current symptoms that you have. I am 100% behind the idea of keeping up with lab work and relevant uh, screening and relative, um, whether it's CAT scans or MRIs, and really keeping up with all of that once cancer treatment is done. Because we know that finding metastatic disease or new cancers early is one of the most important pieces to having a good outcome. So you don't want to be working with somebody who is not trained to help you keep up with all of that in conjunction with your conventional medical care team. Yes, and... I, I think that Western medicine, traditional Western medicine, has amazing technology. I mean, truly blows me away. I'm old, I'm old enough. I'm way old enough. <laughs> that it's just like, wow, we have, you know, scanning things and x-rays that just come across on the tube now instead of sheet, giant sheet film and really amazing measuring tools. And I think that having access to that is silly not to take advantage of it. But then to take that, now this is my opinion. I feel like this is not financial advice. This is my opinion. That <laughs> I want to take that information and hand it to a doctor such as yourself. Naturopathic yeah, that's, that's, orientation. That's, 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 I think information is good. You know what I mean? People yeah. always say, well, I don't want to, I don't want to look because I don't want to know. I'm like, you know, that's not really very helpful. <laughs> information yeah. is good. And I think the thing about natural medicine, and this is talking more for people who are currently in treatment, is that conventional treatment for cancer has improved a lot over the last decades. You know, they're going yeah. for, it used to be what's the most amount of something we can give a person that doesn't kill them. Now it's what's the least amount we can give a person and have a positive effect. Many treatment right. approaches are individualized to the patient in terms of their own genetics and their own, literally their own biochemistry with, in regard to immunotherapy. So that, those are great and very important advances. But natural medicine, what natural medicine can do during treatment is basically enhance the efficacy of conventional care. So in other words, what can we do? What can we take? What can we eat? to help make any cancer cells that might be in my body more chemosensitive or more radiosensitive. And there are mm -hmm. many things we can do depending on what kind of approaches are taken. And then what can we do? You know, these, each one of these kinds of approaches has a known side effect profile. What can we do to help prevent side effects from arising? We, you know, prevention, again, even in that situation, is always easier than treatment. So what can we do to help prevent side effects? And I can give you like one or two examples from each of these categories in a minute if you want. The third thing is what can we do to address, what are the tools we have in our toolkit to address the side effects that do arise? And there are a ton of them. And then lastly, we shift more into that, what are we doing afterwards to help mop up, which is really the, the, the topic of, of my book. Um, shall I give a couple of examples from these categories? I will preface that by saying, and in chapter 17, you talk a lot about this. This is a wonderful chapter, uh, naturopathic recommendations for specific health problems after cancer care. I yes. think that's an amazing chapter. We might do a whole yes. show just on that chapter. But 100%. yes, please give some examples. Yes, right. Okay, so we'll, we'll, uh, we'll get to those. So in terms of like enhancing the efficacy of certain chemotherapeutic agents, um, there, there are certain supplements that are known to help 
enhanced efficacy of certain chemotherapies. I'm not going to give the list here because it depends on the chemotherapy. With radiation, we know that exercise being well perfused, meaning your blood moving around right before you have your radiation, helps the radiation work better. So I have all my patients commit to a half an hour walk before they're going to get on the table for the radiation. Sometimes it's up and down the hallway of the hospital, sometimes at a nearby park, or maybe it's on a get on a stationary bike in your living room, whatever, what have you. In terms of addressing um, and preventing side effects, we know that for a lot of chemotherapeutic agents, mouth sores are a big problem. We know that the amino acid glutamine, when used in dilution, maybe making a, uh, putting in water and stirring and swishing and swallowing, can help to prevent mouth sores from developing. In terms of mopping up afterward, and uh, thank you for the shout out for Chapter 17, but I go through some of the most common challenges that people have after conventional care from lymphedema, to peripheral neuropathy, to fatigue, to brain fog, to getting infections a lot, to lack of satisfaction or enjoyment with intimacy, and, and a number of others. And we just go through the naturopathic medicine approaches to addressing those symptoms, including dietary recommendations. Oftentimes, I'm just, you know, you sound, for me, it sounds a little like a broken record, but I would say that the anti-inflammatory diet is a key and central area that everybody can work on and move toward and improve to help with symptoms that arose after cancer care or sustained after cancer care. Um, and then we talk about botanical medicine approaches, sometimes hypothyroid hydrotherapy, sometimes uh, herbal medicines. And so there are lots of ways to address these very, very common complaints. Many people will say to me, well, you know, I'm just so lucky to be alive. I can live with this. You know, mm -hmm. let's face it, we're all lucky to be alive. And if, you, if there are natural <laughs> medicine approaches that you can use to help, here they are and, and give, them a, give them a try and try to get someone in there to, to help you really aim the approaches most specifically for your individual biochemistry. Mm -hmm. And I would, I would hearken back to what we talked about earlier. Given the opportunity, the body will heal itself. So I, I'm not a fan of, and I've worked with a bunch, not like yourself, but I mean, I've worked with a number of people with cancer post, particularly when they had the herb store, they'd come in and they'd want this or, you know, maybe ginger for the upset or inflammation or yeah. whatever they're working with, that there's no reason to not try and be healthy afterwards. Oh, yeah, that's true. Some, I have some patients in my practice who have cancer. They're smokers and they don't want to stop. Oh, I already got cancer. What's the big deal? I'm like, no, oh, no, no, no. Don't, don't, that's, that's wrong thing. You, you can stop at any point and improve your, your outcome. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I do feel like I have, a body of knowledge and a body of information that is evidence-based and it needs to be presented in a way that's individualized to the patient with also a large portion of cheerleading. And mm -hmm. I believe that that's part of my job. I take it seriously and I think I'm pretty good at it. Uh, people need encouragement and they need a plan and they need to not be overwhelmed, try not to overwhelm anybody, take things one step at a time for small steps that have enduring an ability to, to use in an enduring way for keeping an eye on the, on the, the prize, you know, feeling good and, and living long. I think that we all want that, you know? Yes. So live long and prosper as Bach would say. Yes. Yes, exactly. And, and why we're, we're going to go a couple minutes long we could go two hours long, but we're only going to go a couple minutes long is 
why why wouldn't we all want to be on an anti-inflammatory diet now? No reason. No reason. As a lifestyle. It, it, it is good for everybody. It is yeah. literally good for everybody. And just to, for those of you who don't know, what, does, what do we mean by an anti-inflammatory diet? We mean a diet that focuses on vegetables and fruit, lean proteins, healthy fats, and enough, uh, enough hydration, enough, uh, enough water, uh, and whole grains instead of refined grains. Uh, we try to sidestep excessive alcohol use, fast foods, a lot of processed foods, additives, preservatives, and chemicals, and lean into organic foods whenever possible. It used to be that people would say, well, there may be better for you. It's hard to say. The research is, is 100% uh, in support of organic uh, vegetables, and, and if you're using eggs, dairy, and meat and poultry and fish, you want to try to get those that are raised without hormones, antibiotics, and other chemicals. Um, it's harder to do this kind of diet when you live in a food desert, 100%. It's, mm-hmm. it's, we don't like the fact and the ongoing understanding and study of health disparities based on who has access to healthy foods and who can afford them. That's not right in our society at this moment. Um, and I would say that it's also true that right now the biggest seller of organic foods in America is Walmart. Um, so we have wow. some buying, yes, I know, because they're buying in large mm-hmm. amounts, sometimes more affordable. Frozen mm-hmm. is second best to fresh. It maintains, retains the vast majority of nutrients, frozen fruits and vegetables. So I often will keep frozen fruits and vegetables in my freezer for the days where I don't have all the time to clean and cut and chop and cook and then tidy up afterward. Uh, That's a a great way to access those kinds of foods. People's biggest downfalls, I would say, are fast foods, prepared foods, and alcohol. These are all things that, you know, many fast foods and prepared foods have way too much salt. Other big downfalls for people are sweets. Uh, You know, who doesn't love sweets, bakery goods, but all of the refined Flowers and white sugars are depressive to our immune function, so we need to start replacing those as much as we can with whole grains, high fiber, working on the microbiome. I have a whole chapter in here on how to eat and when to eat, uh, lots to say about that, but anti-inflammatory diet helps with arthritis, it helps with mental clarity, it helps with balancing the hormones. I mean, it's really a good diet for the vast majority of people. And I will say that uh, well, this is a whole other show sometime. I was a chef for 20 years, on and off. Oh. And the technology of flash frozen foods is in a, in a wonderful, mind-blowing state of great benefit. I always have several bags of frozen vegetables in my fridge because you too, just not unlike it. yourself, I, I will go to the fridge. Yes, I can go to the farmer's market and I can, I, I love going to the farmer's market and touching the dirty hands of farmers that grow my food. Me too. That's a, that's period. However, I also always have frozen vegetables in my freeze that are organic that have been taken at their peak moment and flash frozen. And all those yes. micronutrients are there. They're already chopped, even though I can chop like a Cuisinart. Um, and I can throw them into a dish. <laughs> Boom. There's a whole <laughs> exactly. bag of vegetables in a dish. Exactly. And I love that. One I'm of the a... things that we know, one of the things that mm-hmm. we know is that, that people who eat more and more variety of vegetables tend to have better health outcomes. So I give myself the goal of 10 vegetables a day. And people go, oh, my God, 10 vegetables a day. How do you do that? The best way to do it is to <laughs> 
just add one or two to breakfast. So that means if I am having a bowl of cereal, I might also have a carrot. Or yeah. if I'm having eggs and toast, I might flash saute some kale or some spinach. So, so super quick things. That's some knocking one or two off with breakfast. Then usually mm-hmm. for lunch, I have a nice green salad. I love to grate things like beets, red cabbage, carrots in my salad. I love to put the usual fare, cucumbers, tomatoes, et cetera, maybe a few olives, a forkful of something fermented to help enhance my microbiome, maybe fermented beets or fermented uh, just a forkful of sauerkraut. So there I'm getting six, seven, maybe eight veggies in my lunch. And always I'll put on that in addition some form of lean protein, some leftover grilled chicken, a hard-boiled egg, a handful of kidney beans or garbanzo beans, a handful of walnuts. And then with dinner, I have one or two. So I don't always get to 10, but I have it in my mind to have a goal like that. And what that does, it also provides a lot of prebiotic material for which mm-hmm. your probiotics need to, to work well with all the fiber, helps ensure good bowel movement every day. Um, so you give yourself a little challenge. Can I eat 10 vegetables in one day? Seems real easy to me, but I also always have a food processor on the counter and you just go into the fridge and you pick up, you know, oh, there, look, there's a leftover <laughs> rutabaga or there's a carrot or there's a cucumber, exactly. there's, you know, there's anything. And and you've got a wonderful slaw with a nice vinaigrette on it I love that it. you can throw into it. anything. You can scribble it into eggs. You can throw that into, you know, uh, spaghetti squash that's been cooked and shredded and then you make a fake pasta Perfect. or an alternative. I'll call it an alternative <laughs> pasta. How about that? Um, okay, we will definitely do this more. <laughs> we could just talk once a month. Um, this was really great, Doctor. Uh, well, thank really you so great. much for having me. And I and I highly recommend. I'll put this in the show notes. Going to your blog. I mean, the, yeah. I'll give you the link. I'll ask you this: Where would you like people to find more information about you and your book? And you then bet. I'll put all these links in the show notes. Okay, you bet. Um, well, uh, you can follow me on social media. I'm happy to have more followers there. And I can tell, you can, I'll just give you the list and you can put those in the show notes. But the right. best place to go for current information and to pre-order, if you like, if you're listening to this in the summer of 2022, after that, you can also order my book. And I should say the book will come out in hardback, softback, ebook, and audio. I did read the entire book. It will be on Audible. Wow. Um, yeah. Wow. It's, it's, by the way, it's harder than it looks, but it's super oh, it's fun. So much harder. Terrific, yes. <laughs> yeah. I have a terrific audio engineer, Peter Acker. He was wonderful. Excellent. Um, but that, the book is going to launch on September 27th, 2022. Uh, if you pre-order, that would be wonderful. And then go, and I'm encouraging people to pre-order on Bookshop instead of going to one of the larger um, Mm -hmm. online retailers, although it's available anywhere books are sold. This way, if you go to bookshop, the local independent bookstores will get a little cut of that, the proceeds. But you can find information, you can find my current blog at at dramyrothenberg.com. It's D-R-A-M-Y Rothenberg, R-O-T-H-E-N-B-E-R-G, dramyrothenberg.com. And there's information about the book, you can listen to a one-hour lecture I did on the same title of the book uh, for Whole Foods a while back. That's there. And lots of fun reading, links to other podcasts that I've done the last several months that have been so fun for me to do and have the opportunity to talk about natural medicine and the, the training and expertise of naturopathic physicians and also to highlight and encourage people to get my book. Wonderful. Thank you so much. I have so so many questions, but we're stopping now. Okay. (laughs) Thanks, everybody. Have a great rest of the week. Bye-bye. You too. Bye-bye.